0: By way of introduction this morning, let me read you a short story called The House on the Island. A wealthy man owned a remote island on which he had laid the foundations of a home that he planned to build. He was personally visiting the island to see the progress when a violent storm approached. He was preparing to leave in his personal aircraft when he observed a large passenger vessel foundering in the waves off his island. He hurried down to the shore and reached it just as the vessel sunk below the waves. And moments later, he glimpsed the first survivors crawling through the surf onto his beach. He helped a few into a lift that he had built to reach the top of the cliffs on which his home was being built. He brought the survivors into the shelter that the structure provided from the storm and from the elements. The man got into his aircraft to leave before the storm cut off all escape so that he could return with more help and more means to escape. Despite the departure of the island's owner and no given time frame for his return, the survivors refreshed themselves with some supplies in the shelter and hopefully set out for the beach. They reached the edge of the cliff and realized the dire predicament that they all faced. The cliffs lined the beach all around the island, providing no natural access to the solid ground above on which the owner's house was being built. Thus, all the hundreds of survivors littering the beach below were cut off from the safety above and exposed to the intermittently severe but sustained storm. The only hope was the lift that the owner had constructed from the top of the cliffs down to the beach. It could carry a few people up the cliff at a time, but despite their efforts, they could not operate it except from the top, The beach-stranded castaways then could not get themselves to the top. They were dependent on those who had been delivered to the top of the cliffs and to the shelter that it promised. Perhaps you see in this story an allegory, an analogy. This is written as a parable of the church. The church being the structure that is being built on top of the cliffs, on top of the island. And the believers, the church or those who are rescued and are charged with the task of continuing that rescue. And the story goes on, but what if it stopped there? What if it stopped with the rescued being content to just stay on top of the cliffs, With they had shelter and safety and supplies and comfort? What happens when the church becomes complacent, when we get stuck in a comfort zone, when we shift into neutral. God has designs for the church to spread to the ends of the earth, but sometimes we are slow to move. big idea I want us to look at this morning is that the church is not neutral, or it is not supposed to be. The gospel doesn't just let us stay in our small little comfort zones and in our ignorance, the gospel is constantly pushing us out. It's agitating us. It's activating us. Pushing us outward. Driving the church. The church is not in neutral. As we continue through the book of Acts we want to look at a place where we see the gospel keeping the church moving. If you'll turn with me to Acts 10 we will look here. While you're turning there Acts chapter 10 uh, if you've been with us throughout this month with this mini-series we're going through, the book of Acts, excuse me. Uh, You've noticed we've not been able to go through every verse, every chapter, having a short window. I've tried to pick some of the most foundational aspects of the Acts narrative that apply to the church. There are many significant things that happen in the book of Acts that we just won't get to, the conversion of Saul and a a lot of Paul's ministry. But there are some things that Uh, are, are very crucial to us understanding what and who we are as a church. And this is one of them. Acts chapter 10. We want to see, first of all, one of the ways that the church is not a neutral, that the gospel keeps us moving, is that it exceeds our expectations. The gospel does more and is more than we often expect it to do and to be. Start here at the beginning with the picture that we're given. Uh, of a man named Cornelius. Follow along with me in verse one. At Caesarea, there is a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa to bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And so Cornelius does this. He sends messengers to the apostle Peter. Well, let's see what's going on here. This person of Cornelius, he's described as as a devout man, an honorable man. He's doing good things. He's praying to God. He is uh, a Roman who grew up learning and knowing about all the Roman gods, Jupiter and Apollos and all of their their whole system of of deities. But he seems to have rejected that. And where, where he's in Palestine amongst Jewish believers, he is attracted to their theology, their monotheism, their God. He prays to this God. And God comes and speaks to him and even describes more of his actions. Your prayers, your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And these are good descriptions, good signs, but the text tells us that that is, that's not the end of the story of Cornelius. Cornelius is not just a someone who believes in God and that is the end of the story. It, it brings us to this distinction right away that there are, There's a difference between people who are attracted to God or attracted to the gospel and those who actually believe in the gospel. One of the expectations the gospel shatters for us is that the gospel is not too broad. The gospel, the good news, the salvation that is promised does not just automatically apply to all good people. There's a distinction between those who who know about God and are attracted to things about God, and those who actually believe it. Cornelius, he was here, and sequentially, I think, he's at the place where he was responding to what he knew. He was living to the light he had. He, He knew things about God, and he was putting his faith in them, but he had not yet heard the gospel. And there are many people like that, where they are maybe living in faith based on what they know, what they've been shown, but they have not yet heard the gospel. But there are others. Maybe there are some who believe in God, but they just don't have anything deeper than that. There's a generic disbelief in God. But they might not even know that their gospel is more than that. Maybe they've just not understood that from Scripture. Further, there are some who are very attracted to the church, things of God, things are about the gospel. They're they want they're attracted to the morality or the, the community that the church has. But they have intentionally chosen not to believe the gospel. I had a co-worker who I shared the gospel with several years ago who was a member of a church. But he very clearly told me he did not believe the gospel. I shared the gospel with him. He said, I know that, but I don't, I don't buy it. I asked him why he was a part of the church, and he said, "We just it's good to be a part of the community, want our kids to grow up knowing about church and stuff. He had been exposed to the gospel, but he inwardly rejected it. And then there further, there are some who expect universal salvation. It doesn't, doesn't matter what you believe, where you're at, who you're born to, doesn't, and nothing matters. Everyone will eventually be saved. God's forgiveness applies to everyone. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Cornelius gives us an indication. There's a difference between those who know about God and maybe even attracted to some of those things and those who actually believe it and those who experience the blessing of salvation. What's the difference? What sets those apart? The difference is the gospel must be preached. Cornelius was living to the light he had and God came and met him where he was at. But he didn't say, your faith has made you well. He said, go and find someone to preach the gospel to you. The gospel must be preached. When Cornelius meets Peter finally, in verse 33 he says, we are all here, he gathered his whole household in the presence of God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. We we like what we've heard about God so far, but we need to hear more. We have to hear more good news. Acts chapter 11, actually, Peter goes and then summarizes this whole thing, this whole story of chapter 10. He goes to the church in Jerusalem and summarizes it, and uh, in, in Acts 11, verse 13 and 14, he, he actually gives a few more details in his summary about the initial message that Cornelius received from the, from the angel. He said, the angel... Told Cornelius, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. He wasn't given automatic salvation just because he prayed to God. He was told, Go and hear the gospel by which you will be saved. It must be the gospel. It must be repentance and faith. Again, when Peter recounts this to the church in Jerusalem and 11 verse 18, he says, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. There's a response that is required. It's not just enough to know the gospel and know the facts. There must be a repentance, a turning from rebellion and living for oneself to turning to faith in God and, and living under Jesus Christ." As Lord. And that's how Peter portrays Jesus in verse 36 when he actually gets to preaching the gospel. Verse 36 the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. There must be repentance and faith. So we need to make sure that our expectations of the gospel are not too broad. We also need to make sure that they're not too narrow. Both of them actually end up selling the gospel short. Either one, though, we need to have corrected. We need to adjust our expectations to what the gospel promises, and it will actually exceed our expectations. You do not want to be too narrow. There's some narrowness going on in this text. There's still a misunderstanding of the Jews in the church, of what the gospel was, what God's design for the church was when Peter recounts this, again in chapter 11, in verse 2, it says the circumcision party criticized him for having gone and spent time with Gentiles, gone and preached the gospel to Gentiles. And I don't, we don't know exactly if their belief was they thought the gospel was only for Jews, or if they thought the gospel maybe was for everybody, but the The Jews were going to be the the ones that had the spirit, were going to be the ruling class and the Gentiles were going to have to do something else. Don't know exactly, but they were not happy. But they were missing missing out on something. They should have known from the beginning this was God's design for the church. All the way back in Genesis when God promised to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, that he would bless him, he also said that all the families of the earth will be blessed. It was not just Israel, just not just Abraham's family. The blessing that came from Abraham would apply to everybody. And when Jesus spoke some of his final words to his disciples, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of, of which nation, Israel only? No, of all nations. And then again in Acts 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and that's it, right? No, Samaria and the ends of the earth. So there are still these some confusing expectations and God is working to break down the the box that the Jews were were living in. It's several months, maybe even a couple years since Pentecost where the the Jews have been growing in in number and organizing churches, but it's still primarily people of Israel that are making up the church. But he's breaking down the box. In chapter eight, we see that the gospel actually gets preached to Samaritans. These were half-blood people from Israel. They were intermingled with other countries, and they were hated by the Jews, but the gospel went there, and there are people that are coming to faith. And even in the begin, the context of this story, we start out finding Peter in a place that he would not normally be found. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the epicenter of the Jewish church. Where do we find him? We find him in Joppa. This is a primarily gentile city it's not a center of the jewish church he's in a gentile city the man he's staying with named simon don't know if he was a believer a hebrew or if he was a gentile um, if he was a hebrew he was living outside the law tannery was something that was anathema to the jews uh, required handling dead animals which was against their law made them unclean and something he did all day every day so if he was a Hebrew, he was living outside the law. Um, the Hebrew law was very clear that uh, tanners had to live so many miles away from the community. <laughs> That's why it says he is living by the sea. So he could be a uh, Hebrew again. They also hated tanners so much that they had a, a law written that if, if a, an engaged woman found out that, there, that her betrothed was a tanner, she could call off the wedding on those grounds alone. And yet we find Peter lodging here, spending time. So he's already being pushed out. The gospel is already moving him outside of his comfort zone, out to the fringes of what he felt comfortable with and normal. And then God comes and kind of shatters the rest of the box here. Pick up in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey, these are the messengers from Cornelius and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, "'Rise, Peter, kill and eat.'" But Peter said, "'By no means, Lord.'" for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again, a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up once to heaven. Verse 17, it says Peter was perplexed about this, and then the messengers show up. Down in verse 20, the speaks to Peter, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, because I sent them. Peter understands, begins to understand what's going on here. His first reaction is, by no means, Lord. I would never do that. I would never transgress those laws, those dietary restrictions. But as God explains, Peter starts to soften. God says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And he's speaking of the food there. Obviously, the food that was off limits to Jews for centuries God is saying it has changed. God has made these clean. He's not just calling them clean, He's making them clean. He's taking what was off limits and He's making it clean. The work of Jesus Christ has fulfilled the laws that set those things apart. So it's talking about food, but it's not just talking about food. The whole world is in view here. When the sheet comes down, it specifically talks about the four corners. That was their geographical reference, you know, the, the poles, the north, south, east, and west. The whole geography of the earth was in play here. This was people, not just food. And Peter echoes that. When he meets Cornelius, he says in verse 28, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He, he understands God's not just talking about food. See, there's a, a universal call, even though there's not universal salvation There's a universal call of the gospel. Anyone, everyone. We should not be too narrow. Salvation is offered to all because Jesus is Lord of all. That's why we can say in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's why they can say years later, writing to the church in Galatians, Galatia, excuse me. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. If you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. It's not just Jews who are Abraham's offspring. There is a unity in the church. That's why we can sing, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Now, most of us aren't really surprised that the gospel is for the Gentiles, right? I'm not really Shocking you here. Most of us are Gentiles. Maybe every one of us. I don't know exactly. Most of us are Gentiles and we're hearing the gospel. So we're not exactly surprised by this. We've grown up in contexts where the gospel has almost always been preached and available to anybody that wants to hear it. But maybe that's made us expect something of the gospel that is not there. Maybe we expect, of course, course we get to hear the gospel. Maybe we even come to think that we deserve it. We need to make sure that the, the grace that we give ourselves, we, we don't normally think of the gospel being too narrow when we apply it to ourselves. We, we think, of course, we can hear it, but we need to make sure we often don't pass that on to others. We might think too narrowly of others like the Jews did the Gentiles. Maybe we can't fully appreciate what the Gentiles thought, or the Jews thought of the Gentiles. But I want to ask us, maybe we can consider it in our own spect- the narrowness we find in our own expectations of other people. When we think of people who are different than us, others, people who are very other than us, sometimes that's that's people that we just don't understand. Or sometimes it's people that we think we understand all too well and we just don't like what they stand for or who, where they came from or what they're doing. Maybe it's a, a Mormon or a Muslim. Maybe it's a Maybe to you it might be an illegal immigrant taking American jobs or it could be on the other side of it the bloated rich 1% who are not sharing with the rest. Maybe it's someone on the far right or the far left of the political spectrum somewhere opposite from you and understand them or not. Just might not be ready to to get along with them. Might think that makes us uncomfortable. Someone from a different church who might believe some different theology than us. Maybe someone from a different race, what is called race in our society. Someone of a, of a different color of skin. Maybe it's not just that it makes us uncomfortable. Maybe it goes beyond just our personal preferences. Maybe we think that some of those people might be beyond the gospel. And maybe not just that they wouldn't ever come to believe the gospel, but maybe we think they couldn't. Maybe the gospel could never get there. The gospel couldn't pierce that heart of stone. Maybe we've seen people that we think are beyond forgiveness. There's too much to forgive. Maybe even in the darkness of our own hearts, we hope that they would not come to the gospel. An abusive parent or a spouse human trafficker, spoke with a a man very recently who could not reconcile with the fact that the gospel could be offered to a a child predator. Maybe you wonder, could Ted Bundy really have been saved and forgiven? Could someone from Al-Qaeda or ISIS can the gospel go there? We need to correct any narrowness that we put on the gospel. Any of these categories? It starts with remembering that we did not ever deserve the gospel. None of us. We sang, the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches the most defiled. We were the most defiled. The song we sang also said, nor of fitness, fondly dreamed. Don't even dare dream that you're fit enough for the gospel. None of us are. So we need to be ready for the gospel to correct our expectations, broad or narrow, to exceed our expectations. The Church is not neutral. Is it talking big picture? But it comes down to us on a very individual level. What do you expect from the gospel? That's the next thing we we see here, that the gospel brings individual change. We're not just talking about big people groups. We're not just talking about the Gentiles and the Jews. We're talking about individuals. We started looking at an individual, Cornelius. Let's look what happens to him and the individuals in his household. Bear with me, there's an extended passage here, starting in verse 38 when Peter preaches the gospel to them. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the gospel that was preached to Cornelius and his household And what happens, keep following, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcision who had come with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him, to remain for some days. Holy Spirit comes because people are hearing the gospel and they are repenting and turning in faith. There are new believers. Where there were people living in darkness, people in the flesh, they are now in the light. They now have the Spirit. They're now God glorifying new creations. They are extolling God when they're speaking in tongues in verse 46 they're worshiping they're proclaiming who God is they're identifying with Jesus and the body of Christ there is baptism in view here they're identifying and there's fellowship they asked Peter to stay with him for several days Jews and Gentiles spending time together there's immediately this fellowship because they have Jesus in common even though they had nothing else in common it's not just new believers Gospel does not stay in neutral. It keeps changing old believers too. Peter. Peter has changed. Remember, he started off by saying, no means, Lord. But then when he meets Cornelius in verse 29, he says, I came without objection. He was ready to do what the Spirit told him to do. He says right before that, verse 28, he said, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This is not the same Peter from a few chapters ago or from the Gospels. Another example of this is when Peter first entered the house, Cornelius was so grateful to see him, he fell down on his knees and said he worshiped him. But Peter said, no, stand up, I, too, am just a man. This is the same Peter that argued for honor and prestige, argued with the disciples about who was the best disciple and who could sit at Jesus' right hand. He's not the same Peter. While the gospel keeps moving in us, it keeps pushing us outside of our comfort zones. It keeps changing us on an individual level, but let's, let's zoom back out a little bit to uh, the big picture. Because something that we probably all need to change in more on an individual level is to have a zoomed out view of the world. To have our eyes on the ends of the earth. The gospel moves us and drives us, it directs us to the ends of the earth. A lot of times we talk about the gospel and... Even when we're talking about missions, we kind of pair that with evangelism in our, in our immediate context, in the, in the places we live, in our workplaces, people we already know. And that's right, and that's, that's good. But I think the thrust of this is that the gospel is pushing us beyond where we just live. The gospel is pushing us outside our comfort zones. It needs to go all the way to the ends of the earth. What's happened here is Paul, Peter is way outside his comfort zone. And because of that, God uses him to bring the gospel to a new people group. The, the Gentiles, they had not heard and believed the gospel yet. And then it continued to grow and grow from there. Very next chapter, chapter 11, what happens next? There's now a church planted in Antioch. Antioch is another Gentile city. A whole church composed almost exclusively of Gentiles. And it just keeps going and going from there. The whole rest of the book of Acts is almost exclusively Gentile growth, outward. Started in the Middle East and Judea and Samaria and just kept growing and growing. The Middle East, North Africa. It's said that Thomas was a missionary to India. Within decades of Jesus dying on the cross, there's a missionary in India. And there are still churches today that say, yeah, we're here because Thomas planted this church. The gospel went to Europe beyond Rome. It went to many other cultures and and people groups in ancient Europe. And even got up into the British Isles within a few hundred years of Jesus rising from the dead. Roman Britain had the gospel It's interesting, so to see some of the ebbs and flows. It might make us somewhat sad or discouraged to to see that there were places that had the church that we don't see the church anymore. The Arabian Peninsula. It's said that Matthew was the missionary down to the Arabian Peninsula. We don't get to see much of the church there anymore. Central Asia, the Caucasian regions, and even the stands, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, used to be hubs of the early church. Within the few centuries, there were missionary agencies from Central Asia sending missionaries to the rest of the world. We don't see much of the church there. Europe used to be awash with nations that fought for the cross, but we do not see that now. Did you know that even just a hundred years ago, less than a hundred years ago, the city that used to be called the Jerusalem of the East was Pyongyang. It's hard to know why and, and how the Spirit moves, why there, are there used to be churches in places we don't see it now. We, we know that the Spirit does. And in places where the church was strong, there is now a void. There's a need And there are places on the earth where we, as far as we know, there's never been a church. Some of the remote regions of Central Africa and South America, Southeast Asia and the Pacific. The need is great. The harvest is is great, Jesus said. Most recent numbers I, I was looking at just this week. Unreached people groups. You might be somewhat familiar with that term, unreached people group. It means someone where there's no indigenous community of believing Christians with the numbers and resources to evangelize their own people without a missionary coming in and helping. Or how many people groups in the world is that true of? People groups, they have their own place to live and culture and language. Experts say that there are more than 7,000 groups where they don't have enough numbers and resources to evangelize their own people as, as best as we can understand. And these aren't small, tiny, tiny groups. These are groups that represent three billion people. Three billion. There's an even smaller, zoomed-in subset of this called frontier people groups. They're unreached people, but... They're even more in need. They have fewer than .1% of people that call themselves Christian of any kind, which is a loose term, and there's no known gospel movement. There's nothing happening in those people groups where someone, there's the gospel trying to grow. How many groups are there? 4,700 groups where we don't know that there's anything happening with the gospel. That represents 1.8 billion people. One-fourth of the world lives in frontier people groups and have almost no chance of hearing about Jesus from someone in their own people group. Lots of numbers we could say. I, maybe this is the just a good summary of it, and maybe you've heard me say it before, but if every believer in the world told today everybody that they knew about Jesus. Everyone that every believer has access to that we know we can tell the gospel to, we told them today, there would still be three billion people who have never heard about Jesus. Don't even know the name Jesus. Jesus. We can think of that in maybe discouraging terms or negative terms, but I I quoted Jesus' words, the harvest is great. Jesus is actually very optimistic. The harvest is great. There are incredible numbers of people that have yet to hear the gospel who can come to Jesus estimated that every day, 74,000 people across the globe put their faith in Christ. 74,000 people every day. 28,000 of those are probably in China. An average of 3,500 new churches open every week around the world. A lot of them not here. Brazil, Nigeria, Philippines, 3,500 new churches every week. From 1990 to 2000, that single decade, just a few years ago, the number of born-again believers doubled in the world, as best as we know. The harvest is great, but you know the rest of that verse, right? The workers are few. So ask the Lord to send more workers. There are a lot of things that we could we could think and try to think of as as applications. What do we do with all this information? Some of it needs to be we, we need to pray to send more workers. It said many of us cannot reach the mission field on our feet, but we can reach them on our knees. We can pray. We can support those who go great story here from a man who went to India with William Carey. He said, Our undertaking to India really appeared to me on its commencement to be somewhat like a few men who were deliberating about the importance of penetrating into a deep mine which had never been before explored. And we had no one to guide us. And while we were thus deliberating, Carey, as it were, said, Well, I'll go down if you will hold the rope. Before he went down, he, as it seemed to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect that while we lived, we should never let go of that rope. How, how can we respond? We can pray for more workers. We can hold on to that rope. It can be easy to send the missionaries off. Oh yes, we, we know about all those people groups and we have missionaries going and taking care of that. And we're not holding the rope. It could be easy to think we're holding the rope because we're putting our check in the offering that's supporting them, and that is definitely necessary. We must do more. And I also want to say that... As much as not all of us can go, when Jesus says, pray to send more workers, not everybody's going to go be a worker. But I don't want that to be a hindrance to anyone who should go. That some stay and pray, and some stay and hold the rope, should not be a justification to not go, if that is where God is leading you. Spurgeon said, I will not believe that you have tasted the honey of the gospel, if you can eat it all by yourself. The honey is really that sweet. There are three billion people that need to taste it. David Platt said this, every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. If you are a saved person this side of heaven, someone needs to hear the gospel from you. And most of those people are out there. Too many are willing to sit at God's table but not to work in his field. We should not stay at the top of the cliffs where there's safety, where the structure's being built, collecting our resources, getting lazy, staying in our comfort zones and neglecting the lost ones down on the beach. So maybe the way that the gospel is going to come and shake you up, bring individual change to your life, some of you, maybe even some of you old Believers, like Peter, is to stir you up to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Where do missionaries come from? They come from churches like this. Come from believers who are ready to go, who are not letting, not staying in their comfort zone, not staying in neutral. Let close with this final quote from Thomas Watson. Our work is great, our time short and our master is urgent. God, we pray that the gospel would drive our church, that we would not stay in neutral. The gospel would lead this church to keep our eyes on the ends of the earth and send and go and be places we've never been before. If you would see a fit to raise up from our own church those who would go. I pray that you would be glorified in that. That the gospel would keep working in us, breaking down our our walls, our comfort zones, making us making us change and grow for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.